and welcome to another episode of Gentle Man, Redefining Manhood in the 21st Century. My name is Arjuna, I'm your host, and today I want to talk about the concept of man as protector. So this is an archetype that's been around pretty much as long as anyone can remember. Certainly when you go back in history, you see evidence everywhere of men being portrayed in protector roles. Delving more into the history and the scholarship around that is a very interesting project that I'd like to do and perhaps the subject of a future podcast. But for today, what I'm more interested in is examining this archetype of the man as the protector and how it can be applied or redefined or reimagined in the contemporary era. So I want to start off by examining some of the different ways in which the archetype of man as protector are expressed in culture and have been expressed in culture. One of the first ones I want to talk about is the idea of the man as the protector of the family. Certainly in the modern concept of the nuclear family that we have in the white western world, one of the roles of a man in a family, and especially the role of the father, is to protect the women and the children. So to protect his wife, to protect his children. And this runs very deep in the psyche. In the United States where I live, one can very much imagine this male protector archetype showing up on the western frontier, this kind of farmer boy ideal that a lot of Americans grow up learning about in their history. The idea of the man who is a farmer and a provider, the provider is also, uh, it's kind of a related role to being a protector. So the notion of this man is that he works to build a house, he works as a farmer to raise crops, and when the time comes, he takes up the gun. And in addition to hunting with that gun, he also uses it to protect his family from wild animals and from other men and other people who might want to come and take his resources. So this image is very much embedded in the American male psyche and in the larger American cultural unconscious. This equating of men and guns and protection and these wide open natural spaces full of things that go bump in the night, full of harmful beasts. You also start to see some of America's genocidal colonial history coming out in this notion, too, of men protecting against native people. There's this supposed threat of wild natives that we see represented in cowboy movies, for example, which is still very much deeply embedded in the psyche. And we still see it playing out in Hollywood. There are so many even contemporary action films which end up playing out this cowboys versus Indians narrative. So the notion that the American man needs to be ready to take up arms in service of protecting any particular ideal, whether it is manifest destiny, Christianity, protecting some notion of culture or homeland, however misguided that notion is, protecting against outside perversive forces, whether they're framed as immigrants in a racist way, or whether they're framed as harmful behaviors or social ideas in the way that homosexuality and queerness, for example, have been portrayed. There's this combative notion that there are forces of evil or forces of darkness that are constantly just beyond the reach of the firelight or just outside of the front porch that must be defended against. And men are primarily expected to fulfill this role. 
So that's one of the ways in which men on a personal level are conceived as having to step up and be a protector. Now I want to talk a little bit more about some social roles, some one could almost say job archetypes, occupational archetypes, which depict the man in the role of the protector. The deepest one archetypally is the warrior. The warrior is a very basic human archetype, which is, again, stretches back as far as anyone can really see based on oral traditions, based on archaeology and anthropology. This is a really universal human concept. And the warrior throughout history has very often been portrayed and associated with men and masculinity. Now, there are certainly plenty of examples, again, throughout culture where women show up as warriors or women show up in the protector role. So I don't want to suggest that this is a purely male thing. Not at all. We see in Greek mythology, for example, the goddess Athena being depicted of a goddess of war and fighting, among other things. One can look also towards some of these powerful wild woman destroyer archetypes, like, for example, India's Kali as being another very fiercely protective archetype. But in the broader notion of the warrior and in a historical examination of who has typically been expected to be a warrior in society, it is most often men. And certainly in the contemporary era, the notion of what it means to be a warrior is very strongly understood or represented as a male role and as a male occupation. Two of the most ready examples of the male warrior in modern culture are soldiers and police officers. So let's talk about these roles. The soldier is an interesting role because it represents a departure from what a warrior used to be. The notion of a warrior in many pre-modern cultures was very much a notion of individual development in service to the group. So it's not that the warrior was acting as an individual and not considering the needs of other people. The warrior was very much showing up in service to the community, to the village, to the family. There's a strong aspect of service to the archetype of the warrior. But the concept of the warrior was very much focused on personal growth, and it was very much focused on personal development, and it was very much focused on each individual warrior showing up with their gifts and their unique strengths and serving their communities from that place of strength and groundedness. Now, if you contrast that to the notion of what a soldier is, a soldier is someone who has been taken and modified and used and reshaped it's a really important distinction that I want to make sure I'm clear about. So a soldier is someone whose identity has been removed, someone who has been homogenized, someone who has been in many ways reduced. Another word for soldier is pawn, which we see show up in chess. The notion of the pawn is somebody who is controllable and somebody who is expendable. And so the idea of the soldier is very much a departure from this, what I might even dare to call the more sacred or deeper notion of what a warrior is. And so while soldiers still show up in society are, and are employed in some ways which at least appear to be honorable or still appear to be in service to the culture in some way, there's some very key element. There's a, a key personal and spiritual aspect of the development of a warrior, which is removed in the notion of the soldier. The soldier, rather than acting from a place of deep moral conviction, is simply following orders. A soldier, instead of 
carrying out any necessary violence from a place of perhaps righteous anger or an anger motivated by love and a deep sense of protection of people they love. The soldier is rather expressing their action from a place of taking orders. A soldier specifically is not supposed to think about what they're doing. A soldier is supposed to do what they're told unquestioningly. And as a result of this, we see this shift away from warriors being honorable, responsible, and deeply thoughtful people and towards warriors and soldiers being thoughtless, mindless, expendable, and ultimately weapons of violence. There's been much rumination on this, especially in reflecting upon the great wars of the 20th century, where we really saw the reproduction and the wanton sacrifice of soldiers on a whole other level. There's also an aspect of this which very much comes into the conversation around veterans and PTSD and how our soldiers are received in society after conflict. And there's been a lot of rumination in the 20th century of the damage done to soldiers who have participated in conflicts that have ultimately turned out to be immoral or serving the needs of the elite rather than serving the needs of the people that they actually love and the communities they actually want to support. And so that's a whole other level of harm, which has been incurred by soldiers in the contemporary era, which is still being digested and understood and worked on from a psychological perspective and from a cultural perspective through books, works of art, personal relationships. So the notion of the warrior, I would argue, has been very much corrupted in the contemporary era, and it has really muddied the waters around the idea of what righteous anger or righteous violence, righteous aggression is. As a result, this has created a need for men to reckon with those things, because the culture is strongly reinforcing this narrative of violence being applied in a very immoral way and in a very selfish way and on a massive scale. And that can't help but seep into the culture. That can't help but affect the behaviors of men and boys day to day in their lives. So when they don't have good modeling for what healthy aggression is, and they don't have good modeling for a situation in which violence and taking people's lives might actually be justified, which, spoiler alert, it almost never is. But without that good example, men and boys can't help but recreate those wars on a personal level in their own relationships. So that's something I really want to highlight here. The microcosm of male violence very much reflects the macrocosm of male violence in our current culture. And it's very much reinforced by these notions of, for example, in the U.S., gun ownership, which again, go back to this colonizer and kind of frontier idea of what a man is. It's no surprise that mass shootings and male violence with guns is such an epidemic in the United States when you consider the underpinnings of the culture, when you consider the basic values of the culture and how they encourage men to express themselves and their anguish and their pain and their grief. So now I want to touch on the other main warrior archetype that I see in contemporary culture, which is the policeman, the security guard, the uniformed man with a gun. And there are many ways in which this archetype is actually stronger and more important for the average person than the soldier. And that is because we see policemen and we see security guards on a daily basis. We see them driving down the street, we see them in our parks, we see them in our schools, we see them when we're out shopping. We're constantly surrounded by men in uniform with guns. 
And there are so many things that this does and that this reinforces. And again, it's a very, very deep topic that I'm only just going to scratch the surface of here. But one of the things that I want to highlight is that the police in particular are another way in which a lot of the healthier notions of what a protector is have been stripped away. There are ways in which the violences committed by police are particularly grievous because unlike the soldier, soldiers are primarily deployed and sent into war zones where there is an expectation that they're going to encounter other soldiers or other forces of resistance. And so there's a certain sort of mutuality in that exchange. And while there are many ways and circumstances in which this is applied in an unfair way or in a dishonorable way, the fundamental assumption is that soldiers are supposed to fight other soldiers. Police officers, on the other hand, are expected to control and deliver violence upon civilians. This is one of the reasons why there's been so much controversy throughout the ages with police officers, because a majority of the violence that they commit happens among populations of people who are ostensibly at least supposed to be civilians and supposed to be harmless. And it's one of the reasons that we see so much outrage and so many calls for checking or reforming police brutality, because this is a situation in which you have a protector, a warrior with a weapon committing violence against innocent civilians. And so there's something deeply troubling about having contemporary societies in which there are uniformed men with guns with a mandate to kill who are wandering among civilians in their daily lives and who to a large degree get to kill indiscriminately just based on their own judgment and based on the fundament of their own characters. So whereas soldiers are generally instructed to kill via very specific orders, Police officers are generally given free reign, to free reign to wander around and kill at their own discretion. And this sets a very dangerous precedent in day-to-day -day society. It institutionalizes violence in a way that becomes very oppressive and very malignant. There's a lot of implications here, ways that this is expressed in ways that the police become pawns, the expression of racism in the culture, ways that the police are utilized to control people, ways in which the threat of the police keeps people from doing things like organizing, protesting, striking, engaging in acts of social resistance. And to bring it back to men, it's just another way in which the society reinforces that men are violent and that men cannot be trusted. Because even though there are plenty of female and non-male police officers, the majority of the police still are men, and the social archetype of the police officer is a man. Even in the simplicity of the interchangeability between the words policeman and police officer will reveal that particular bias. So as you can see, these two main male warrior archetypes that we see in contemporary culture are hardly reassuring when it comes to the notion of providing a blueprint for healthy protector energy or a healthy channel of male aggression. And so when we couple these archetypes with common depictions in the media of men committing violence and books and other stories that continue to glorify male violence and this might makes right kind of a notion it's very easy to see where men go wrong with their violence and with their aggression. They're not being supported culturally, they're not being supported archetypally, they're not being supported personally to develop the kind of character that it takes to control aggression, 
to develop the kind of discipline and compassion that it takes to be able to make a discernment between when, when violence is necessary and when it is not. That old adage of with power comes responsibility applies very well here. Men have the capacity to wield great power in the form of aggression and violence, but in order to do so properly, it takes an incredible amount of responsibility and an incredible amount of personal development, which is not happening. And so with this as the backdrop, the concept of the modern man as a protector is troubled at best. So what I want to talk about now is how do we work with this? So far in this podcast, I have basically been identifying the problem, and now it's time for us to talk about the solution. How do we work with these archetypes? How do we work with these cultural representations? How do we work with these behaviors? It's a big question, and there's one main idea that I want to explore, which I think offers at least a partial solution or a place to start with men wanting to tap into their protector archetype and their protector identities and show up in a more positive way in their relationships, in their communities, and in their culture at large. So I think that men can and should and actually need to harness this power of the protector and this idea of what a warrior is in their contemporary lives, but it needs to look different now than it did in the past. So looking back over history, we see a lot of call to men showing up to the protector role in a very physical way, men actually using their aggression and using their violence to protect. But what we're seeing in contemporary culture is a movement away from the need to do that. When we're talking about the natural world, for example, human culture has subjugated the planet enough and our technologies have become sophisticated enough that the notion of needing to protect ourselves against wild animals, for example, is nearly non-existent. That's not to say that there isn't still an imperative to do that, but rather it's not an expectation that's placed on the average man or the average person in the same way that it used to be. And those threats don't loom as large as they used to. Also, when we look at the notion of war and conflict, this is also something that I personally believe as humans, we're moving away from the need to do that. Now, it's not to imply that it's not happening and it's not to imply that it won't continue to happen. I wish I could say otherwise, but at least for the moment, war is here to stay. But more what I'm implying with this is that war as a concept is becoming outdated. We're seeing this through the massive protests that have happened in the 20th century, we're seeing this general movement towards there being more shame and secrecy around military conflict precisely because it's understood that it's not really acceptable anymore. There's an increased pressure on politicians to find diplomatic ways to solve problems. And I believe that the average person on the planet has no desire for or interest in their nation being involved in armed conflict. So that's kind of a claim that I'm making there. It's hard to really back that up, but that's just a personal belief of mine. But what we're presented with here is the notion of a man needing to be a protector in another way, right? Instead of being a protector as a warrior or in a physical way or in the expression of physical violence using violence to protect, I believe that men are needing to shift their protector role. There are different kinds of threats and challenges which need to be protected against and which need to be faced by men. Those threats and challenges are predominantly social, and one of the biggest aha moments that I had around this when I was thinking about it 
is that the thing that men need to protect against most right now is themselves and other men. So I'm going to say this again. The primary concern, and I would argue the primary threat, which men need to be concerned about in society at the moment, is the threat coming from themselves and the threat coming from other men. Why is this? I find the answer to be quite simple, which to me makes the assertion quite obvious, which is the majority of violence that people experience in society today is inflicted by men. If you're going to be assaulted in any kind of contemporary social context, either physically assaulted or sexually assaulted, it's almost certainly going to come from a man. If you're going to find yourself under threat from a weapon, it's more likely to involve a man. And so as men, one of the aspects of coming to maturity in this time is understanding and accepting the prevalence of male violence. Understanding and accepting that we ourselves have been and could potentially be the vehicles for perpetuating that violence. And it's a hard thing to contemplate. For the last number of years of my life, I've really been thinking deeply about this, and it's been very painful. It's been very challenging for me to, to examine the ways in my life that I have already expressed male violence, either sexist violence or just straight-up male aggression, or emotional violence out of immaturity, or trying to get some of my unmet needs met in unethical ways. It's been a hard road for me to walk, and I would posit that it's a hard road for any man to walk. But it is also a part of accepting the legacy of male violence, and it is also a part of reversing, or in the very least, working to minimize the continuation of male violence. If men are predominantly the cause of violence, men also need to predominantly be a force for minimizing violence. And so that's really where I see the opportunity for the male protector role to show up today is in identifying and minimizing violence. So let's start by talking about relationships because this is a place that most men find themselves in and is an opportunity for pretty much any man to start putting this concept into practice. Another big realization I had when I was thinking about this topic was that as a man in relationship with women, the primary threat to those women from men is me. Take a moment to just take that in and assimilate that idea. As a man in relationship with a woman, the primary threat to that woman is me. The reason for that is that as male partners to women, we are the men who are most readily allowed into their space, into their vulnerable physical space, into the day-to-day -day space of their lives. We are entrusted so much by our female partners. And tragically, statistics show that if a woman gets murdered or sexually assaulted, it's more likely to come from their male partners than from almost anyone else. When a pregnant woman goes missing or gets murdered, her husband is always the primary suspect. There's a chilling statistical reality to that, which I think a lot of men still don't really grasp or understand or haven't really read about. So certainly if we're speaking purely from a perspective of numbers, male partners of women have a high likelihood of being the perpetrators of violence against those women. And if it's not male partners, it's close men or trusted men or men that those women see every day. So it could be co-workers, it could be members of a community, maybe members of a congregation, men that women see regularly. And so even beyond our own partnerships, we can look to our relationships with our women friends, with our women family, 
Men need to understand that we are high on the list of people who pose a potential threat to the women that we know. And I want to be clear here that I'm not saying that any given man listening to this is doing that. And I'm not saying that any given man listening to this is going to be doing that. Just to be clear, I'm not trying to just reach out and indiscriminately call men monsters. But I do want to make sure that I'm being heard in the fact that Men need to take responsibility for the potential of their violence. The archetypes are there, the grooves have been cut in culture, which push us in the direction of violence. And so we need to be doubly vigilant to make sure that we ourselves are not men who are perpetuating this violence. It's something I believe most men don't take as seriously as they should. And so one of the gifts that the warrior archetype has to offer men at this time is a reminder around restraint and discipline and self-awareness and self-mastery. It's also a reminder towards the healthy channeling of aggression, the healthy channeling of the ability to do harm, or just the ability to be powerful in one's body. This is still in a lot of ways a very male propensity, the need to move and express the body and in some cases to express the body in a more combative way. This is still in the psyche of a lot of men, and so the male warrior archetype is actually a really healthy way for men to express that through things such as martial arts, competitive sports in some cases. As long as those practices are taught with a foundation or the fundamental understanding of discipline, where men start to get into trouble is if they're on sports teams that don't also foster a sense of responsibility and communal stewardship and mutual regulation. You know, when there's a culture of men keeping an eye on each other, calling each other out, reminding each other of core values, then organizations like sports teams can be a positive force in the community. Sometimes where they go awry is when they become petri dishes for male toxicity or for problematic ideas, which are then amplified through the larger expression of the group. But I think martial arts in particular are a really fantastic channeling and expression of that aggressive urge and that kind of bodily assertive urge. Pretty much all the martial arts traditions that I can think of exercise the concepts of restraint and just use and morality as a core value of the practice. So the contemporary warrior needs to be recontextualized as a defender of people who need to be defended, as someone who speaks out against injustice, as someone who makes sure that they are not themselves perpetuating injustice, a person who is using the tools of discipline and introspection to make sure that they themselves are not perpetuating violence, while at the same time summoning their assertiveness and summoning their combative energy to do things such as call out injustice when they see it, or speak to another man who they see doing wrong. This is a great way that men can summon some of their warrior energy and some of that combative energy for a just cause. They can become warriors who are trying to fight the good fight. And so a very simple way that you can do this is by calling out your friends when they're making sexist remarks. Or perhaps if you're out at a club and you see random other men being disrespectful to or violating the boundaries of some random woman in the club, you can intervene using your either your powers of assertiveness or your powers of persuasiveness or even your powers of de-escalation. These are all different ways that a warrior energy can show up, right? A warrior is not so much someone who vanquishes an opponent. A warrior is someone who has a mission and sticks to that mission. 
So the energy of the warrior goes beyond merely protecting or merely fighting. A warrior is first and foremost someone who is singularly dedicated to a mission. And so when men start to do this, when men start to discover their own inner capacity for discipline and their own inner capacity for restraint and their capacity to grow and work with their assertiveness in a very focused way, then men can start to step back into the role of being the protectors, but they are protectors of their communities and they are protectors of their relationships and they are protectors of cultural freedoms and and the ability for particularly non-male people to feel safe. When more men start to feel like it is their duty to protect the safety of people who aren't men to express themselves, that will be a huge shift in the notion of what male protectiveness actually is. When you have men who are walking down the street and thinking, how can I make sure that this street is a nonviolent place? How can I make sure that the other people walking down this street right now feel safe? How can I make sure that the priority in this moment and every moment is making sure that no matter who is sharing the space that I'm in, making sure that those people feel comfortable, making sure that those people have whatever privacy they want to have, making sure that those people don't feel obligated to interact with me or other people in the environment, making sure that if some uncomfortable interaction is happening, that we're all being vigilant about that and thinking, is this a moment when it's productive for me to step in or to intervene, or just even in some way put my body or put myself into the space to make make it a safer space. So I just want to be very clear that I'm not talking about men taking their pent-up aggression and starting fights with other men over over some kind of misguided vigilante impulse. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm more talking about men using their words and men using their privilege and men using their ability to occupy space in a very grounded and assertive way to maintain a certain level of civility and nonviolence in the spaces that men are showing up in. And this is a way for men to bring back some of that honor, which is generally perceived to be lacking at the moment. A lot of people will say things like chivalry is dead and that men don't have the character they used to have. And while I think this notion of men having lost some kind of virtue that they used to have is somewhat misguided, I think that that notion has been overblown and somewhat weaponized. And I think that there are varying levels of truth to that assertion. So for example, when you really go back and examine a concept like chivalry, you'll discover that the cultural auspices under which that was practiced were very much more misogynistic than the rose-colored glasses of history might lead you to believe. But nevertheless, there have been certain places and times in human history where there has been an ideal of men being honorable and men following a code of conduct. And I think there's a certain way in which that framing and that notion can be reapplied in a contemporary context to create a less violent world. Codes and ethical creeds are really the currency of the warrior. And so I do believe that there is particularly a certain propensity of man who does very well with that kind of structure. And so establishing the cultural notion of a protective man who practices nonviolence, especially towards women and towards those less privileged than himself, has a lot of merit. I'm not saying the path of the nonviolent man warrior is a path that every person needs to walk necessarily. I'm more suggesting that this is an archetype that we can draw upon, each person to their own degree, 
which can help to inform our actions, all of our actions, and which can help us to aspire towards a certain ideal or a certain standard of conduct, which when practiced on a daily basis and in a conscious way, can really change the way that we walk in the world. And what you'll find is that when you start leaning into this concept and when you start conducting yourself in that way and with that kind of assertiveness and with that kind of responsibility, you'll start to attract respect. People do respect other people who are who express themselves clearly and assertively. People respect people who have power but show restraint. People respect people who have the capacity to do harm but who instead choose to show up with kindness and gentleness. These are ways in which people can express the golden side of their nature. Often what we see when people resort to actual violence is that other structures of respect and esteem have broken down. So a man who conducts himself in this way is generally going to be well-liked and well-respected. And it can really help to bring out some of the finer qualities in anybody. So I think there's something in this warrior archetype for us all to contemplate and to work with in our own lives. And this is a way in which we can continually be redefining classic archetypes to speak to our contemporary experience. So much of the gendered experience is around these archetypes of these bigger picture stories which inform the day-to-day conduct of people in some subtle and some not-so-subtle ways. And so I believe it is the job of each generation to be examining the archetypes that they're growing up with and deciding, how do these apply in my day? These archetypes are so embedded in the psyche, they are unmistakable and unavoidable. We can't simply cancel them out. We can't simply move away from them. We can't simply say, these are old stories that aren't relevant anymore. I believe it's more important to re-examine these archetypes and think, how do they show up today? How are they best expressed today? I think an examination of how did these archetypes used to serve people and how can they be re-envisioned so that they can continue to serve people is the way that we need to be approaching these. So thank you for listening to my meditation today on the topic of the warrior and the male protector. I hope this podcast has been informative or helpful to you in some way. If you find that it has, please share it with your friends, with your community on social media. That's a very simple but powerful way that you can help this podcast to grow. And if you like what I'm talking about and you like the message that I'm bringing, I hope you will in some way find a way to share this via your word of mouth. Thank you, and I look forward to catching you next week. Mm